Thanks for listening to and sharing Our Body Politic. As you know, we're new and we're creating the show with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because you and your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. My family has epic Thanksgivings. Every year, my aunt makes a lattice crust cherry pie from fruit from her own tree. Last year, my cousin made one turkey in the smoker and another in the oven. Family flew in and drove in from around the country. But this year, my mother and I will be eating together a few miles away from my cousin, trying to avoid the pandemic robbing us of our health and our lives. One recent survey found 40% of Americans are still planning on group holiday dinners. Now, I'm not here to make you feel bad if you're one of them, but I am here to say, please be as safe as you can. One of my friends spent 40 days on a ventilator and another 20 in rehab because of COVID. She was able to come back to her family and go back to work, but not everybody is so lucky. This week, we bring you Dr. Celine Gounder, newly appointed to Biden's COVID-19 task force. We're really doing our best, trying our best to keep everybody uh, safe and healthy, to reestablish trust in science, to reestablish trust in the public health community. Later in the show, we talk politics, including the impact of religion on our vote, plus love, loss, and migration with author Yah Jesse. Up next, Representative Rashida Tlaib on the battles inside the Democratic Party and how she fights for her district. Let's start with a look at the political chessboard. The Democrats won the White House this year, but lost seats in the House of Representatives. Some powerful Democrats are pointing fingers at the squad, all of whom were first elected in 2018, all women of color, and all of whom were re-elected this year. Even the Trump campaign, which is still sending out emails, is fundraising off of the squad. Rashida Tlaib is a founding member of the squad, which also includes representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Ayanna Presley. Tlaib represents Michigan's 13th district, which includes Detroit. She's one of the first two female members of the Democratic Socialist Party to serve in Congress. Representative Rashida Tlaib, welcome to Our Body Politic. Thank you so much for having me. So... First of all, I'm just thrilled that you were able to make time for us. I can't imagine all the to-do lists, you know, like you probably have one rolling out the door if it were on paper. But tell me what your top priority is as we approach the new year and the new administration. Uh, We're in the middle of a pandemic. I represent the third poorest congressional district in the country. And so my main focus is making sure our families are safe and they're able to take care of their families and their communities And so I'm pushing for reoccurring payments, not just one-time payment. Our our folks are truly um, hurting right now. Uh, And so we need to make sure that we have a COVID relief package that bails people first, that is centered on our people and our schools and our communities and our real mom-pop small businesses. Uh, We also have to 
truly think about the future that every person wants. No one wants to be left with inadequate health care and a medical bill that sends them into debt and poverty. So if we approach issues with holistic vision that puts people first, I know we'll be successful. I know it will help uh, not only stimulate the economy, that which is a priority many of my colleagues, but also really truly take care of the people that sent us here. Take me back to a time where you first really started to understand the power of the law, the power of government. You know, I grew up in southwest Detroit, and for folks in Michigan, they they know what I mean when I say to them, I thought that smell was normal, that everybody around me has asthma, uh, respiratory issues, high rates of cancer in my community. And if you look at that community, which is predominantly Black, predominantly immigrant, uh, low income, the fact that that community looks like that, but if you go outside of that community, you will see thriving communities. You see clean air. You will see uh, schools that are very well-funded. And for me, I have truly understand that these systems right now are truly broken, that systematic racism truly does exist for Black and brown communities to have this very, very different experience than other communities. But again, we can organize and outwork the corporate greed, outwork Uh, the injustices, and we do it by continuing to march, continue to speak out, just inspire, again, folks to say we deserve better. And you have introduced the Justice for All Act. Um, tell, Tell us about the goals and the purpose of that. You know, when the Civil Rights Act was passed, and it's true intention by advocates and those that lost their lives uh, for the civil rights movement in our country, much of that was to push back against direct civil Uh, rights violations, discrimination for many of our Black communities, our vulnerable communities. And so this is a bill that would help us restore the original intent. And I know Justice for All Civil Rights Act um, is about allowing disparate impact to be a, a threshold that we can use to show discrimination and show that it's negatively impacting communities of color. Right now, the Democratic Party has at least two factions, probably more, um, as parties tend to do in a country this big with only two major parties. And I've been struck that not only have you and your colleagues in what's called the squad been attacked, um, but it even includes some criticisms from uh, people of color. I'm thinking of Representative Hakeem Jeffries, who said, Do we want to win? Do we want to govern? Or do we want to be internet celebrities? And that seemed to be targeted mainly at your colleague, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But what do you make of the tensions within the Democratic Party right now and the criticism that you and colleagues of like mind are getting? No, I think it's really important to know when, when folks say we need to win, but are we really winning when poverty is increasing? Are we really winning where you have cities like in Detroit where people during a pandemic still don't have access to water, while we're you know, watching our uh, communities literally die uh, because they have no access to testing or a healthcare system that's for everyone. And so it is important that we understand what does it mean to win? Does it mean to, to, to get the number of folks in there? And then what do we do with that? What do we do with the majority? We watch how those that support Medicare for all are winning their elections. Those that are promoting $15 minimum wage increase are winning their elections. Those that are saying, hey, we deserve clean air and clean water, they're winning their elections. 
And the ones that continue to try to silence me or devalue the importance of districts like mine need to understand that it is not helpful to be that to, to be able to say you can't come into this space and advocate for black folks. You can't come into this space and advocate for those that have seen their loved ones die of cancer. You can't come into this space and speak up for the district that elected you. I am equally elected like every single one of my colleagues. I ask them to focus on their district, focus on elevating the voices of their district, and I will continue to do the same. And I feel like if we truly are rooted in our communities and our districts and focus on direct contact with our residents and stay close to the pain and the hurt, you will win. Now, the squad, um, which has originally been um, viewed as you, Representatives Ocasio-Cortez, Omar, and Presley, um, seems to be expanding. You've got uh, incoming representatives Jamal Bowman, Marie Newman, Corey Bush, Mondaire Jones. Do you feel that you have an expanded squad, and what does that mean if so? You know, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley always says our squad is big, and what she means, I think, from that is— you know, before we got elected, it, the squad was the movement work. It was the folks on the ground. It was the nurses, the teachers, the construction workers, uh, the homeless person that said, enough. Like, I served my country. I'm a veteran. I come home with no opportunities, no opportunities for jobs, no opportunities for home ownership, and, and so much more. And so our squad and, and our movement is really the people on the ground. But now we're running for office and we're winning. People can see themselves. Uh, being um, part of uh, what's happening in Congress, that they can see this kind of an extension of the movement work in the streets. Shirley Chisholm used to say, the first African-American woman ever elected in the United States Congress, if there's not a seat at the table, bring your own chair. I've kind of altered that and said, I don't know if, if it's about bringing your own chair, if it's maybe about shaking the table and taking someone else's chair that hasn't done much to elevate people out of poverty, hasn't done much to stop the oppressive policies that we see, again, holding so many of our neighbors back. Yeah. And, you know, I can't help but note that you and uh, Representative Ilhan Omar are the first two Muslim women to serve in Congress, yet another, um, you know, huge change for a, a Congress that hasn't always been representative of the nation. And both of you have faced huge blowback for that. How do you deal with it? How do you deal not just specifically with, um, you know, Islamophobia, but just with the stress of doing this job? You know, Alhana Omar uh, gave me the nickname Mama Bear. And, uh, you know, I know it's because I'm the eldest of 14. I kind of consider myself the big sister, the protector, you know, people can come after me, but don't come after my sisters. Don't come after my district. Don't come after my family. And so she lovingly calls me Mama Bear. And I remember coming up to Sister Alhan and I said, are you OK? Because she was being targeted uh, by, you know, the media. And this was early in our term. And she looks right at me and, and says, Rashida, I survived war. I can survive this. And at that moment, I realized our lived experiences is giving us the strength to continue to fight, that we know that we're opening up doors for so many future Hans and Rashidas that can now see themselves in this, you know, in this institution. They may not have been ready for myself and Ilhan, 
but we're gonna make sure that they're ready for the next generation. And what I love about our election, both of us, we got elected by majority non-Muslim district. That always surprises people. And I tell them, you know, fellow Americans who did not share our ethnicity or our faith gave us, uh, you know, their vote and said, please go represent us. If that's not a moment of light during this time of darkness in our country, I don't know what is, but it inspires me again to work even harder for much many of folks in my district that, you know, continue to believe in the possibility of someone like me representing them. Representative Tlaib, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. Coming up later this hour... Communities of color have lack of trust in the health system. So I think that does require patience in terms of communication, and it will require reaching out to members of the community to empower those people. I think that's how you garner trust, is to really bring people in. Dr. Celine Gounder is a medical rock star. She's an epidemiologist, infectious disease specialist, filmmaker, and host of two podcasts, American Diagnosis and Epidemic. The child of an Indian father and a French mother, she was just named to President-elect Biden's Coronavirus Task Force, along with several other people of color. The task force includes a focus on race and ethnicity as it impacts the pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Gounder. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell me one thing you want to accomplish now that you've been appointed to President-elect Biden's COVID-19 task force. If you only could do one thing well, what would it be? I think to reestablish trust in science, to reestablish trust in um, the public health community, um, for people to understand that we're really doing our best, trying our best to keep everybody uh, safe and healthy. Um, and, you know, I, I just hope that we're successful in doing that. We've got these two vaccines that seem to have promise and efficacy, Moderna and Pfizer. Can you just break down what we know about them and what the road ahead is? So they're both based on the same technology. It's actually a, a newer technology that we have not used in vaccines before, um, but it's very exciting, um, seems to be highly effective in the case of both vaccines. They are a little bit different in particular um, as relates to how they need to be stored. So the Pfizer vaccine requires deep freezing, while the Moderna vaccine requires more typical freezing and refrigeration and is stable at those temperatures for a month. How do you think these questions about storage will affect distribution to low-income communities and rural communities? Yeah, so let's take some of these um, categories um, uh, one at a time. So you have um, geography, you have communities of color, and then you have um, sort of socioeconomics. So in terms of rural versus urban, rural is definitely going to be a challenge because you don't have big academic hospital centers, you don't have big hospital systems, period. And and you don't have the same penetration of the big retail pharmacy chains like CVS and Walgreens and others that can also um, provide vaccination. So you're much more reliant on the family um, doctor in these rural areas. And these are not um, doctor's offices that have deep freeze capacity. They don't necessarily have the tech systems 
the tracking systems to be able to figure out who needs to be called in for a vaccination, who's gotten one dose but needs their second dose, to do outreach to people who are not in their practice already. Um, And and so that is going to be a challenge in these rural communities to figure out how to help the providers um, who are already stretched very thin. With respect to communities of color, we've already seen disparities in terms of testing where proportionally there have been fewer testing sites uh, per population in in communities of color versus in in whiter, wealthier communities. We certainly do not want to see that disparity replicated when vaccines get rolled out. But another challenge is, and for very good reason, communities of color um, have lack of trust in the health system. It's something I see on the wards when I care for patients at Bellevue all the time. And so I think that does require patience in terms of communication, and it will require reaching out to members of the community um, to ask them about their concerns, to figure out who they listen to and respect, and um, to empower those people, to have them be at the table with us making plans and decisions. And I think that's how you garner trust is to really bring people in um, and have them be a part of the process uh, where they're really running the show for their own communities. And then finally, the Biden-Harris team is very committed to making sure that everybody who wants to get vaccinated will get vaccinated for free. Um, And so that's not just about the vaccine itself. It's all of the other costs that go around uh, with that, the cost of the nurse and the doctor, you know, the doctor's visit and all of that needs to be free. Um, So that is definitely something we're going to be addressing so that everybody, even if you don't have insurance, has access to this vaccine. So I want to end on a personal level. Um, I want you to tell us a little bit about your family background and also the backstory behind your last name, since you (laughs) hit the Indian press as well as the American press. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So at the time that my dad left India, people were still, by and large, using their cast names as their last names. So names like um, Chatterjee, Banerjee, Mukherjee, Murthy, those are all cast names, um, just as is Gounder. But, you know, recently when the announcement of the Biden-Harris advisory board um, came out, uh, people in India were super excited. And I think that was, by and large, um, the reaction. They were excited that um, Vivek Murthy, Atul Gawande, and I, all of whom were, were from, you know, have families from India, have roots in India, um, are on the advisory board. They were super excited that Kamala Harris is is half Indian herself. Um, And so they took tremendous pride in that. Um, You know, but there was a small but vocal uh, group of people from Tamil Nadu uh, in particular who objected to my use of my cast name as my last name. And, And I think it's an important reminder, you know, about some of the inequities, some of the power dynamics that are embedded in something as simple as your name. Yeah. Well, you know, I am really looking forward to all of the different levels of competency you're bringing to this job, medical competency, communications, cultural competency. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Dr. Celine Gounder is an epidemiologist, medical journalist, and a member of the Biden COVID-19 task force. Coming up, I think that there is a real conversation happening on the other side of of this election about 
what the Black women who really propelled Joe Biden to his uh, victory, what they are owed in terms of power. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Each week, we take a couple of minutes to update you on the latest COVID news, especially as it affects people of color. As we heard from Dr. Gounder, there's promising vaccine news. Clinical trials show vaccines from Moderna and another from Pfizer and BioNTech are more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 symptoms. Both vaccines require two doses spaced weeks apart before the patient is protected from illness. It's not clear yet how long that protection will last. These trials still need to be peer-reviewed. The news couldn't come soon enough. Now, more than a quarter of a million people in America have died from COVID-19. Dr. Anthony Fauci says that if the Food and Drug Administration approves the vaccines quickly, distribution could start as early as late December. It would go first to the medically vulnerable, like the elderly or those with underlying health conditions, and to frontline healthcare workers. But how fast things move depends on the Trump administration's willingness to work with the incoming Biden administration. Here's Dr. Fauci on the Today Show. Transitions are very important to get a smooth, essentially, as I use the, the metaphor, essentially passing a baton without stopping running. Meanwhile, cases in the U.S. are topping more than 11 million this week, with 1 million people testing positive last week. Dr. Fauci says that means there is no time to wait for a vaccine to get the virus under control. The fact that help is on the way should spur us even more to double down on some of the public health measures, to be able to use the combination of a vaccine and public health measures to turn this thing around. As we head into Thanksgiving next week, families are weighing the risks of getting together and relying on COVID tests to make sure it's safe. But some tests give false negatives, and experts say testing alone is not enough. Dr. Scott Gottlieb is former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. Here he is on Face the Nation. I think you still need to be very careful if you're going to be exposing younger people in a broader group to older individuals who are vulnerable. If you do do that, Make sure they're wearing high-quality masks. Try to get an N95 mask and have them wear it the whole time. Um, Try to keep people separate and distance where you can. New research from the CDC shows that cloth face masks protect the wearer from getting infected, not just from infecting others. Masks do work, and we all just need to wear them. Also, several states have rolled out COVID alerts for your phone that will tell you if you've crossed paths with someone who's tested positive. Check with your local health department to find out whether one is available in your area. At ESPN's The Undefeated, journalists turn the pandemic into an opportunity to talk about race. Lane O'Neill is a senior writer for ESPN's The Undefeated. She's been reporting on the intersection of race, sports, and health in America. So ESPN The Undefeated did a poll in conjunction with the Kaiser Family Foundation And the major takeaway is that Black people were particularly vulnerable to all the effects of the pandemic, the economic effects, health effects, certainly. Every index where people have been affected by the coronavirus, um, COVID-19 pandemic, Black people were that much more vulnerable than white people certainly, and among the most vulnerable in the entire population. 
She says that poll reflected differences in perception of how the race of those dying affected the federal response. One of the key findings of the study was that 66% of Black people felt that if it were white people who were disproportionately falling ill and dying, that the federal government and the national response would be stronger. 72% of white people, however, said the federal and the national response would be the same if it were white people who were the face of COVID and, and getting more sick. And I found that to be just a stunning statistic, but completely indicative of the divide around race in this country. The, the attitudes, the lived histories, the literacy around the ways that race has always and continues to shape the response to every other institution in American society, including this public health crisis. O'Neill also said the Black community distrusts the American healthcare system because of decades of medical racism. And people always talk about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which, as we all know, from the 1930s to the 1970s, meant that Black men who were infected with syphilis were not treated even after treatments became available. There's a bone memory in Black communities of people who went into the hospital and didn't come out, right? Um there is the hyper-experimentation on Black bodies. Henrietta Lacks, right? Um, that's another one. If you dig into the history of medical racism, it's, it's grisly. This history, O'Neill says, helps explain why 49% of Black respondents said they would not take a COVID-19 vaccine. Despite all of this, though, O'Neill says Black respondents to the poll remained hopeful. A majority of Black people, despite the distrust, despite the mishandling of the pandemic, despite the lived history of unconscious bias and, and systemic racism and all these things that the poll finds that Black people over-index in and believe to be true, they're still hopeful that this moment represents an opportunity for change, that it represents an opportunity for America to be confronted very starkly with the inescapable facts of racism and the ways that that has devastated this society. And it offers an opportunity to either live up to the American ideals or to imagine something greater. And that's a world where Black people are not disproportionately dying. That was Lane O'Neill, senior writer for ESPN's The Undefeated. And here for our regular segment, Sipping the Political Tea, is Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th and political contributor at Our Body Politic. Hi, Aaron. Gobble, gobble. Oh, my gosh. I am so tired. I mean, I feel like I have lived this entire political season in dog years. I feel like it's 2050 and 1850 at the same time. Uh, oh, my God. Also, it is midnight at four o'clock in the afternoon, and that is not helping me. Uh, so, yes. yeah, I feel you 1,000%. Yeah, but, you know, we are here because this matters. And it's just such a pleasure to, you know, talk to you every week about the relatively crazy state of politics. And speaking of which... It feels like we're living in denial these days uh, when it comes to yeah. the pandemic and the election. 
what's going on in your mind about the ramifications of denial? Well, you know, Farai, really what I'm thinking about a lot these days is too many Americans have spent much of this year avoiding the reality of the pandemic, and now they're avoiding the reality of of the election results. And and this is important because it's not just about, um, you know, President Trump and his actions. This is about what voters are willing to accept. And and there was a Reuters poll this week that said, you know, 73% of those polled agreed that Joe Biden won the election. But then when they were asked specifically about whether Biden had rightfully won, Republicans showed that they were suspicious about how Biden's victory was obtained. And 52% of Republicans said that Trump rightfully won. And so like terms like rightfully won or rigged elections and legal ballots are really code words about who can participate in this democracy. And and we're really talking about Black and brown Americans in places like Wayne County, Michigan, or Fulton County, Georgia, right? Uh, This kind of behavior really sends a message that that their votes don't count, just in the same way that, that the way that people are responding to this pandemic suggests that the safety and survival of the Black and brown people who we know are being disproportionately killed in this pandemic don't matter. Yeah. And so, you know, you started with a friendly gobble gobble. (laughs) Um, You know, at the top of the show, I talked about how I'm really going to miss my family this Thanksgiving, but it's going to be me and my mom. And I'm grateful to be with her and a guinea hen, which I ordered from a fancy place online instead of a turkey. Because when you're having two people, who wants a whole turkey? Absolutely. How are you going to celebrate Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I'll be here, um, you know, in Philadelphia. I definitely ordered my Thanksgiving dinner, although I may break down and and cook a thing or two, uh, you know, for comfort. But I think this is also really a chance for us, uh, you know, for those of us, whether we are gathering uh, at the table safely or, you know, whether we are celebrating uh, a little bit more isolated, you know, it's a chance to be grateful to those frontline workers Uh, to the election officials who made this, in the words of our own federal government, the safest election in the history of the country. So many of those people, especially our women, you know, these are folks uh, that we need to be giving thanks for uh, as really the heroes of our society and of our democracy. Yeah. And finally, on a traditional hard politics topic— yeah. What about the transition team for the Biden-Harris administration? I've been peeping. What yep. have you seen? Well, I mean, it, it is starting to take shape. And, you know, they were pretty quick to note that they've got these agency review teams that uh, have a majority of women uh, representation. And, and about 40% of the folks involved with those agency review teams are folks from what they say are historically underrepresented communities, uh, the LGBTQ communities, communities of color, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the um, disability community. I certainly am interested to see a more specific breakdown of just who those folks are to see how many, for example, how many Black folks are on those agency review teams. Because I think that there is a real conversation happening on the other side of, of this election about what the Black women who really propelled Joe Biden to his uh, victory, w- what they are owed in terms of power, yep. right? Uh, you know, it doesn't just stop with the historic, you know, role of, of, of Madam Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. So, you know, a lot of open questions as this administration and, and this new government uh, continues to take shape, but it's definitely something that I'm keeping an eye on. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. You got it. Happy holidays. That was Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th, and our political contributor here at Our Body Politic. 
Coming up next... I started to recognize that there was a place for me in this story. And I think there is a place for all African immigrants, all Black immigrants in this country um, to kind of understand Blackness as a diasporic thing, um, not just as, you know, us versus them. been breaking down the vote this year through all kinds of demographic lenses, and today we turn to religion. Robert P. Jones is the CEO and founder of PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. Jones says for decades, including the 2016 and 2020 elections, that the majority of white Christians voted for Republican candidates. And Christians of color and the religiously unaffiliated have voted primarily for Democrats. Demography is not destiny, but it's bringing changes to the future of politics. To tell us more, Robert P. Jones, welcome. Hi, thanks for uh, having me. You know, in 2017, you wrote about the high turnout of conservative white Christians for Donald Trump. But you also argue that Trump's rise to power is, in your words, the death rattle of white Christian America. So how do you explain that? Yeah, you know, I, I still think that's true. You know, it, it's it's um, it's a little delayed at the ballot box, and and the I, I've, I've sometimes talked about this as the um, secret Republican time machine um, uh, that Republicans have at their disposal. And, and here's what happens: is that actually during the Obama uh, tenure as president, we moved from being a country that was majority white and Christian uh, to one that was no longer majority white and Christian. So in 2008, when Obama ran for president, the country was. 54% white and Christian. That's all white Christians together, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, non-denominational. That number today is 44. And the group that gets, you know, I think a lot of attention during electoral uh, seasons, white evangelical Protestants, for example, have gone during that same period from 21% of the population back in 2008 to only 15% of the population today. However, there's a, here's the big asterisk. That's true in the general population. Uh, but we haven't quite caught up to that reality at the ballot box. Um, and the reason for that is that white Christian voters tend to turn out at very high rates relative to most other Americans. So, for example, even though they're only 15 percent of the population, um, they are still a quarter of voters um, because of higher uh, turnout. So if you go back and you look back, you know, in terms of uh, demography, uh, the last time, you know, white evangelicals were a quarter of the population was before uh, before President Obama. So, you know, we're running um, the demographics of the country in 2020 match the demographics of the ballot box actually pre-2008. Uh, so what I mean by this kind of uh, delayed uh, thing that we're, we haven't quite seen these demographic realities show up quite yet at the ballot box. I have to tell you about a couple that I interviewed in 2016. Um, they are white evangelical Christians. And even though they really disliked Donald Trump, they voted for him because of the Supreme Court and abortion. Knowing how people vote is only one part of the picture. And you have this latest report, Dueling Realities. How should we think about political polarization right now? Yeah, well, there's no doubt. I mean, we yeah, we titled the report "Dueling Realities" because uh, we do see these very stark divides um, between the political parties. I mean, I'll start with the thing that is at the top of almost everyone's list, and that is the the pandemic. And we're in the midst of uh, the, the curve going back up here. And we found um, 
that, for example, among Republicans, uh, that that the coronavirus pandemic didn't even make the top three uh, of, of their of their list, nor did it make for what you mentioned this white evangelical couple, uh, nor did it make the top of the list for white evangelicals. The, the one thing that the country agreed on actually um, uh, is a little bit ironic because it's the one thing that's dividing us. And that was the fairness of the presidential election. So even the thing that, that everybody cited as a priority is itself something we're divided about. But other than that, and the coronavirus, healthcare, those things were at the top of, of most other religious groups' lists. We're in a phase now where even the election has a long tail. Um, the resident of 1600 Pennsylvania does not accept the results of the election He's mobilizing his supporters. Um, aside from electoral politics, what do you think we need to know about kind of an era of culture war and how these different factors like religion and race affect that? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, when we have used this term in the past, you know, let's say if we were having this conversation a decade ago, what everybody would assume we're talking about was like abortion or same-sex marriage. Right? That, that's what people used to mean by the culture war. Um, and I think if we're going to continue to use the term, we certainly have to redefine it. I mean, that's not the debate we're really having uh, today. I mean, the, the fishers are absolutely about uh, identity uh, and, and race and racial justice um, and, and religion. And it, it really comes down to this kind of big question of who is America? Who gets to be an American? What does an American look like? Right. And this old framework uh, that America is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country is what is dying. Um, and I think that that's also what's causing such a visceral reaction, particularly among white Protestant Christians, um, as they see themselves being decentered from this older narrative, right? And that was, that was never really compatible with um, a, a multiracial, multireligious democracy with our basic principles of our country. And so I think this passing from the scene of, you know, what I called in my last book, you know, the end of white Christian America, uh, the passing of that kind of cultural and political um, kind of juggernaut, um, you know, I think we, we are experiencing, um, you know, these kind of, you can call it a death rattle. You can also think of it as kind of the labor pains of something new being born into the world, you know, that uh, we're, it, it's both a death and I think a new, a new life. And, and that's, we're in this kind of painful struggle um, for something new to be born and a new way of thinking about uh, America and that I would argue is actually more compatible, you know, and, and, and that, that might with our basic principles than this older um, you know, pattern ever was. Well, Robert P. Jones, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. So glad to be with you. That was Robert P. Jones, founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. I want to keep hearing from you, our listeners, those of you on terrestrial radio and on our podcast. You can call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006 to leave us a voicemail on our platform speak. Or go to farai.com slash OBP and scroll down to find a Google form to respond in writing. This month, the prompt is, imagine if women of color trusted the society around them and felt truly free. What would you do if you felt truly free and financially secure? We're going to be using your input to shape the segments we bring you on Our Body Politic. 
The number is 929-353-7006 or write to us at farai.com slash OBP. Next week, I'll be talking to the women who lead the Guild of Future Architects for the second in a series of conversations about how we envision our future. We're often told that history is um, written by the victors or that history tends to repeat itself. So conventional wisdom might tell us that we should learn from history when thinking about the future. But it's a lot more than just learning. What are we learning, right? I would argue that history requires imagination. We've received a lot of answers from listeners to our prompt on Speak, and we're sharing those with the Guild. I would like to tell you what I would do if I felt totally liberated and if I trusted the society around me. Um, I would expand my business and I would integrate um, childcare as part of my business model for employees. I'm also asking the Guild about specifics, like what does housing and caretaking look like that's equitable and accessible? I interviewed a woman named Skawanati, who is um, the founder of the Indigenous Futures Lab in Canada, who is herself Mohawk, Iroquois um, uh, woman. And she said, "In the you know, right now the statistics are that if artificial intelligence is used, equitably. Um, we will have enough housing, health care, food, um, and education for every person on the planet with people working four hours a day, four days a week. And I've been asking you what you do if you felt truly free and financially liberated. How does that help us create a shared freedom and liberation? Listen to Our Body Politic every week. We're on the radio and wherever you find your podcast. My next guest is author Yah Jesse. Born in Ghana, she moved to the U.S. at a young age and grew up in Illinois and Tennessee before settling in Alabama, where her father was a professor at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Her new book is Transcendent Kingdom. Its main character, Gifty, struggles to make sense of the addiction and mental health problems tearing her family apart, and she turns to both science and faith for answers. It's my pleasure to have Yah Jesse on Our Body Politic. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I was really taken with your book on so many levels. I'm a science nerd, a pre-med who became an English major, and I'm also someone who has a family member who dealt with both mental illness and addiction, topics that you cover in the book. You get really deep into the science of addiction, which is something that your main character, Gifty, studies as a scientist. Can you tell us more about Gifty? Sure. Uh, when we meet her, she's a sixth-year doctoral candidate in neuroscience at Stanford University. And she studies something called the neural circuitry of reward-seeking behavior. Basically, she studies things like addiction and depression, mental illnesses wherein, like addiction, a person or a mouse, in the case of what Gifty researches, continues to seek reward even when there's great risk involved, um, or in depression where a person or a mouse does not seek reward even when pleasure is is possible. Um, So she's looking at the spectrum of reward-seeking behavior. And so Gifty is someone who is incredibly controlled on the outside, and yet you really get into her somewhat chaotic and very complex inner narrative. In what ways is she like you, and in what ways is she different from you? 
Mm. I think the way that she's most like me is that uh, I also grew up in a church that's quite similar to the one that Gifty grew up in. I grew up Pentecostal uh, in a church in Huntsville, Alabama that was predominantly white. Um, And I think the isolation of that experience uh, is one that I know very well um, and one that Gifty kind of works throughout the novel. Gifty, as you said, is quite controlled. Um, I think more controlled than I am, but I think she was steeped in the kind of, you know, you have to be twice as good to get half as far narrative of of Black respectability, um, which is something that I also know quite well. This idea that, as she says, nothing but blazing brilliance will be enough to kind of prove your worthiness. So I relate to that as well. You know, your exploration of belief is really, that was also something that drew me in so deeply. Um, Gifty says, I used to believe in a God lens. And then she talks about switching to a science lens. And then both belief systems seem to fail her. And it strikes me that in America right now, we have a failure of a different type of belief system, that belief that our political system is stable. So how do you personally deal with the failure of different belief systems as a person? And how do you bring that into your work, that question? Yeah, that's a great question and something I think I'm certainly thinking about a lot these days. I'm sure most Americans are thinking about a lot these days um, as we do start to um, witness the crumbling of our infrastructure. I think the writing helps. Um, I think the writing is, for me, one of the ways that I am able to kind of create order out of the chaos of the things that I experience and see around me. Um, So it provides me some amount of clarity, even when, you know, clarity is itself kind of always in the distance, never to be completely had. It it makes me think so much about America today, diverse, complex, divided, sometimes unkind and gossipy. Um, You know, I guess just thinking about the the sort of chit-chat about the main family that happens in this faith community um, that was mostly white. And that definitely becomes a whole exploration in this book. Um, Just, again, really provokes me to think about where we are as a crossroads. What do you want people to get from those sequences in your book? Well, I think one of the reasons that um, that my family was drawn to a faith community when we arrived in America was because it's one of the most explicit ways that you can create community. There's this built-in network of people who believe in similar things that you do. Um, so even though ultimately Gifty's church uh, kind of lets Uh, her and her family down. I think one of the things that I take from my own experience in the church um, was that outside of university um, or outside of school, it was one of the few places where I could kind of gather in community with a large group um, and experience something akin to, to intimacy, to closeness. And I think that's just a great gift that that faith communities can give. Being born in America and having traveled to Zimbabwe on and off starting when I was four years old made me understand how very American I am. And moving from New York to Baltimore at a young age made me understand the caste system that surrounds being Black in America. You described yourself as somebody trained to be not Black but not white either. 
you know, in terms mm. of relating to this nation. How do you think about your identity these days? And especially with the rising number of Africans and people with African parents in America. You know, when I was younger, we lived in Huntsville, Alabama, which is actually a pretty racially mixed uh, city, um, but it's also an incredibly segregated one. And we lived on the white side of town. And I think because my parents were so incredibly uh, focused on making sure that we were instilled with a sense of ourselves as Ghanaian, and once we left the house, we didn't have very many other Black people around us, um, it created this, uh, this kind of bubble, um, wherein I felt um, for much of my childhood as though I was straddling the line between race and ethnicity and not really sure how to identify, how to kind of describe myself and how to experience my race and ethnicity. And it wasn't until I got to college and started to meet with other Black people, started to uh, take classes that um, interrogated um, American racial history, um, that I started to recognize that there was a place for me in this story. And I think there's a place for all African immigrants, all Black immigrants in this country um, to kind of understand Blackness as a diasporic thing, um, not just as, you know, us versus them. And that was really useful for me. Just last question. What do you want people to walk away with after reading Transcendent Kingdom, which has so many strong themes and strong characters and a strong narrator? Mm. Yeah, I grew up around people who didn't really talk very much about mental health, both the West Africans in my life, but also I think in the South, uh, my church community, people who were kind of given to either brushing it under the rug or silencing it entirely or discussing mental health issues as something that one should just give to the Lord. Um, one of the things that I really hope that this book offers people, especially Black people, um, is a chance to kind of remove some of the stigma that surrounds issues of mental health and addiction, to understand that these issues are health issues um, and that there's no shame um, in dealing with any of the, the issues that I, that I talk about in the book. Um, uh, yeah. So that's that's what I'd like for people to get out of it. Yeah, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Jesse is the author of Homegoing and Transcendent Kingdom. Thanks so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is presented and syndicated by KCRW, KPCC, and KQED. It's produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Our political booker is Mary Knowles. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Michael Castaneda, Zuhira Ali, and Virginia Laura. Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.